0: Welcome to IAAI's May 2010 CFItrainer.net podcast. This month's podcast is the second in our safety series called It Could Happen to You. In part two, our roundtable participants discuss some of the health complications they are facing due to long-term exposure to toxic substances at the fire scene, how exposures occur, and what fire investigators can do to protect themselves. Our Long-Term Exposure Roundtable is moderated by Robert Schall, current president of the IWI, an ATF senior special agent, and the supervisor of the Arson and Explosives Group in New Orleans. The roundtable discussion begins now.
1: Hello, this is Bobby Schall, president of the International Association of Arson Investigators. I'm here for the second in our series of It Can Happen to You, a safety series discussing some of the hazards of fire investigation. Joining me today is Russ Melton, a partner with the law firm of Mir and Gear in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and David Kircher, a fire investigator with O'Neill and Associates in Somerville, New Jersey. Uh, David, let's uh, let's jump to you first. We we were uh, recently talking about some of your long term health problems that you had and I think you recently got diagnosed with allergic asthma that's been attributed to working fire investigations. Why don't you talk about some of the the symptoms and and causes that led to that?
2: Yeah, um, Bobby, just to give you a brief background, um, speaking with respect to exposures and things like that, 25 years uh, firefighting, law enforcement as a fire investigator, and doing the number and volume of uh, investigations that I've done during my career, because I was in a high-volume area of the city of Newark outside the city of New York. Um, and, and a response to nine eleven 11 spent uh, uh, approximately six weeks uh, at Ground Zero following 9-11 and a bunch of other uh, assignments. And the first thing that happened to me was I got diagnosed with malignant melanoma, skin cancer, uh, being of Irish descent. The son and I do not get along, and I ended up having surgery and those kinds of things for the malignant melanoma. And as a part of that routine and follow-up treatments, I get a yearly chest X-ray. Well, this year's chest X-ray showed up a large gray area on my lungs, and they thought I had COPD, and I had to go to a pulmonary specialist and do all kinds of testing and capacity and those kinds of things. And I've been wheezing and uh, persistent cough. Uh, those kinds of things uh, that manifested themselves as symptoms, coupled with the X-ray, uh, the diagnosis finally, uh, after all the testing, was that it was not, in fact, COPD, but allergic asthma. And I asked the doctor, well, well where would that come from? And he said, well, you know, what you do for a living? He said, it's gonna, it, that's just the a, a, a product of your environment.
1: So it's a, a cumulative effect of, of working fire scenes, and in, in the early days, we all... You know we didn't know about all the risks, so we we didn't use appropriate respiratory protection and whatnot so it was this triggered by one event or was it just a build up over your entire career?
2: No, he said it was the result of twenty five years plus of doing being in the fire service. you know first, I was a firefighter before I became a fire investigator, so in in a sense, I've actually been in the fire service for now thirty five years, so that's what it was, a cumulative effect you know back in the day. Uh, even as firefighters, we went in there were times we went in with, with basically no mask uh, you know fighting fires and then it, and follow- up if you could win the fire and fight fire with no mask, what made you think you had to have one after the fire was out
1: <laughs> right and and that that's something that's kind of misunderstood and, and the University of Phoenix did a, a study a while back basically trying to characterize the risks. During overhaul, when the firefighters generally take off their protective equipment, and, and they found that there are risks during that overhaul period, and they actually implemented requirements to have their their firefighters wear respiratory protection during that phase because the the risks don't go away when the fire is out; they remain even during our fire investigations. And my personal uh problems with with a, a long term health hazard presented relatively early in my career um in 1996 i was diagnosed with bladder cancer um at the time i was outside of the general risk category i was a non-smoker i was under 55 years old so it was rather odd but we kind of just attributed it to an anomaly and and moved forward and later they came back and said well it's probably uh, a direct causal result from working fire investigations because of some of the known hazards the polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons and other uh, volatile organic compounds on fire scenes you're you're breathing them in and they're known carcinogens um, since then i've I've had a recurrence in ninety nine two thousand and again in two thousand and five so i'm on a uh, regiment of annual checkups to make sure but there's still still it's it's a long-term thing that I have to continue to live with um it it presented early it presented in 93 I've uh, I've been working in in fire investigation for about 7 years at the time but you know you do like I think you pointed out in your 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 training presentation on net, you know you get that that courage and you just kind of discount things. And so at the time, I went to the emergency room and they said I was probably kidney stones. So I I discounted it. I didn't have the regular symptoms of kidney stones. It didn't hurt when I urinated or anything like that. But I let it go another three years before I was actually diagnosed. And in my case, I was very fortunate that it wasn't invasive. It it was superficial tumors that were resected. And as long as I, I keep it in check and they catch them early, you know, I I should have no long-term detrimental effects from the cancer. Um, Russ, you've had a similar problem with with bladder cancer, kind of parallels mine. I think you've had it four or five times. And and it's kind of driven you to have a big interest in fire safety and and hazard assessment. Why don't you talk about your background a little bit and talk about some of the uh, underlying uh, protective regulations that are out there?
3: Well, let's start as my cancer, you're right, four or five times, uh, same thing, tumors resected. But I, as far as differential diagnosis in the medical field, much like what we call scientific methodology in NFPA 921, my history is not as clean as yours. Um, I spent many years in the nuclear power industry as a nuclear engineer and spent many years on submarines. And then once I got out, uh, I ended up working in foundries and manufacturing operations where we have welding operations, soldering operations, machine oil, cutting oil, etc. So we come back to the causation element. Um, what occurred for me, the first notice was seeing pink every now and then in the morning when I'd get up uh, in the urine. It looked a little pinkish, or there'd be some drops pinkish. I was trying a case up in northern Minnesota. And just before trial, I went to the restroom, and it was bright red. So the first hour and a half of trial, my head was buzzing. I quickly took a break, went back in, and it was clear. So I go, oh, must not be a problem. Well, it was. It just meant that the tumor uh, was leaking. It had gotten bigger and bigger. And I had my first surgery in 94, uh, and I've had uh, two instances of a form of chemotherapy since then. And most recently... Uh, we've gone from 11111 to the last surgery was February 1st, which I kept quiet. You don't want your clients to think that you're disabled in any manner. I kept it rather quiet, and they removed four tumors. And I'm still having pain, and I'm scheduled for the Mayo Clinic uh, the end of May, three days. But it is, like you say, uh, keeping a check on it, going in ongoing, uh, making sure that uh, the tumors do not get too large, and then essentially you should be back and. Uh, in the field, week to two weeks later.
1: So, Russ, you, you know you're talking about when uh, when you first presented with with blood in your urine, and that's how I presented as well. And, and again, you don't really know what's going on, so you discount it. But in hindsight, don't you think it's important if you if you see a symptom, don't take it for granted, get get it checked, and find out what's going on.
3: Oh, you're absolutely right, Bobby. I made the assumption I first started wearing PPE back let's say about 40 years ago. So the idea of having PP on and being checked once a year by medical, having an X-ray, uh, having blood tested, etc. that wasn't anything unique. What was unique, though, was seeing blood in my urine, and I thought it was something I ate, something I drank. Uh, as like most men, we will find a reason to accommodate that so that we don't have uh, cognitive dissonance. Uh, I determined it was something I ate or drank, and therefore it would go away. Well, it didn't. So you're absolutely right. If you have an aberration that is occurring with your body, breathing, uh, eyes, uh, urine, uh, stomach, esophagus, lungs, get it checked, even though you're having that yearly physical with X-rays.
1: Well, let's let's talk about some of the the OSHA regulations, and I know OSHA per se doesn't necessarily apply to everybody, but every state has a, a similar statute or parallel statute. Let's talk about the respiratory protection uh, requirements in 1910.134. I think a lot of people think that are just a regular dust mask or a, a, a 95 filter will, will protect you. And, and I don't necessarily think that's true because that's protecting you from the dust, but not the organic vapors and it's, it's not really protecting all of the exposure routes, the uh, ab- absorption uh, and the injection and that type of thing. What, what are your thoughts on that?
3: First of all, OSHA depends upon NIOSH to set the standard. Secondly, most of the standards are 30, 40 years old, and as a consequence, many of them uh, will be changed in the future, and they won't be taken up, they'll be taken down. Next, moving along to the comment on the respirators, is that what we've found is, yes, there's dust masks that you can use, but they do not comply with the requirements because each standard has a means. For example, at one parts per million, uh, you can use a uh, a half-face mask. Uh, Then 10 times, uh, you have to move up a little further. Uh, and a hundred times, yet at the same time, when you go to full face, I believe full face should be used at all times for the reason you just brought up. Uh, you've got the eye issues, you've got the skin issues, and then, of course, you have the inhalation issues. So absorption, ingestion, inhalation, all those are means by which you can enter the body. Uh, therefore, the manufacturer has a rating and OSHA has a rating. Either one should be the standard that you follow.
1: And I think I think there's a, a general misunderstanding or misconception in the the fire investigation community um, that that fire scenes aren't hazardous. And while every every fire scene may not qualify as a hazmat scene, some certainly do. But but the hazards on the fire scene are increasing uh, every day with the amount of household chemicals, the change in uh, product construction it just seems like there's a lot more bad things on the fire ground that people are taking for granted and uh, hopefully through open discussion and and dialogue and training and information we can change that mindset uh, and what are some of the things that that you know of that are coming down uh... through the chain that are hopefully gonna better inform people of these hazards
3: well uh, again russ here uh, looking at it uh it's in the news a lot. You've heard about some of the chemicals that are involved. Uh primary one is dibutyl phthalate, and that's an endocrine disruptor. Um, pliable plastics, that's the one that's hot right now as to what's happening with pliable plastics. And, of course, it goes towards uh, children. But we run into that a lot, in uh, and they call it a, really an endocrine disruptor. And uh, you might end up having reduced fertility. You can have... Uh, Uh, skewed male-female ratios, you got a lot of behavior problems. But most of all, I I think we have to be aware and watch what chemicals are coming on the market and what chemicals are in the products that we find in even a standard, relatively, quote-unquote, benign house fire. Uh, And that's one of the areas I think we have to make sure that our members become aware of that once the fire is out, The real hazards begin because during the fire, many of the toxins, because of the heat, are burned away. But once the fire is out, you still have off-gassing, you have dust, you can have contact, and this includes metals, it includes liquids, and it includes vapors. So I really do not believe, and this is my position, that until you have taken tests, every fire scene is a hazmat scene, and then once the scene's been characterized, and that'd be both physical uh, and chemical hazards, then you make a determination as to what uh, engineering controls or personal protective equipment controls are required.
1: Well, and that's that's the thing, trying to get people to to use the personal protective equipment that's out there. Um, safety in the guidelines is really about managing risk. I don't think we can ever... Eliminate all risks and all hazards of fire investigation, but with with the information and the guidance, we can certainly manage that risk and do things safer. Um, I think one of the things we talked about before we started this call, Russ, was there's a a, a new new book coming out that that might have some uh, new information in it. Why don't you talk about that real quickly here before we wrap up? Okay. On?
3: Well, the Many members within the field uh, have ran into Tom Kiefer or ran into Barry Lindley or Dr. Appleton from DuPont. And I use them on a lot of the major scenes, but they also speak to just a standard residential house fire and the hazards that are involved. Uh, the, we're editing the book at this stage, and it's called uh, Street Smart, and it's chemistry for those that work in the field. And what I like about it is it really gives you a brief introduction to chemistry, but then goes into some of the physical changes that happen as a result of uh, being in a fire or, or uh, incompatible chemicals, the so-called slurry or mix that we run into. The toxicology goes over things like the Pell or permissive explosive limits. It's uh, probably, I think, the best book in the market. I, I don't, I'm not selling this. It's one that I've read, and it's one that I keep next to my bed, especially when you're looking at water reactive and air-reactive materials and your organic chemistry. Uh, Polymer chemistry is an uh, element that you should know when we're working, especially uh, when you're running into issues where either the material has been used uh, in that facility, such as uh, your vinyl chloride, your styrene, butadiene, uh, isocyanates would be a good example, urethanes, polyurethanes, etc. It's a very good book. For people that are in the fire industry, to uh, have next to their bedside to stay current.
1: Well, the, I, I really appreciate both of y'all joining us this afternoon, uh, and and hopefully this this has been helpful, and and people really will understand that that safety is important, health is important, and it can happen to you. Um, D- Dave, is your prognosis that it's it's manageable, and you can continue working as long as you use appropriate Protection.
2: Yeah, that's correct, Bobby. And I, I just want to really, real quick, uh, throw one thing in here in closing. The biggest thing here is the guy's got to remember number one, you talked earlier about dust masks. Dust masks aren't sufficient protection. Buy a good APR, air purifying respirator. Use organic vapor, or, or I'm sorry, organic volatile vapor cartridges with HEPA uh, cartridges, combination cartridges make sure that you screen at least screen for those things at the fire ground. Yeah, we could do all that other testing and everything else because we know APRs are hazard-specific, but if you at least cover those, you're protecting yourself. And remember that the APR is meant to be worn on the face, not around the neck. If it's uncomfortable and you get uncomfortable wearing it, consider buying a powered air purifying respirator which is is a little bit better fit. It's full face. It, it costs obviously a, a decent amount of money, but it's well worth the investment. We all want to live to collect those pensions.
1: Uh, absolutely, and and that's that's what we're really trying to do is 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 bring some attention to fire investigator safety because people do take it for granted. But, you know, by by putting a face with a problem, hopefully people will understand it can happen to you. I greatly appreciate you guys joining me, and I I thank everyone for listening to this podcast.
0: We can take away the following safety reminders from today's roundtable. All fire scenes contain hazardous vapors, chemicals, and substances. Toxic substances present at the fire scene have been linked to a variety of illnesses, including cancer and respiratory ailments all fire investigators because of the nature of their occupation are exposed to these toxic substances in their workplace the fire scene it is important not to ignore any physical signs or symptoms that are out of the ordinary to you you need to get checked out as soon as possible the most important thing fire investigators can do to protect themselves from adverse health complications due to long-term exposure at the fire scene is to wear proper personal protective equipment a dust mask or N95 respirator is not sufficient protection at the fire scene. Although they may filter out some particulate matter, they are not able to filter out the toxic vapors from combustion products. An air purifying respirator with the proper cartridge for the scene, such as an organic volatile vapor and HEPA combination cartridge is essential. Above all, it can happen to you, regardless of how long you've been working fire scenes or what you do at the fire scene. Please take a moment to download and read two studies provided on the podcast's page, Characterization of Firefighter Exposures During Fire Overhaul and Health Hazard Evaluation Report 96-0171. Protect yourself, if not for you, then for your family. Finally, we close with news from the IWI. IWI has been awarded a grant through the Assistance to Firefighters Grant Program for $986,850 to expand this distance learning program and to introduce skill assessment practicums for advanced testing of fire investigator competency. This grant will also provide continued support for the IAAI monthly podcasts. The annual election for officers and directors of the IAAI is underway on the IAAI website, firearson.com. Members of the association can vote through noon Eastern Daylight Time on Monday, May 17th. The results of the election will be announced at the annual general membership meeting in Orlando, Florida on Tuesday, May 18th. That concludes this trainer.net podcast. We'll see you again next month.